Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 2, Episode 36, the second part of two on the Dead Sea. Last week, I covered the geography of the Dead Sea. If you missed it, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm covering the history and current state of the Dead Sea, as well as the area around it. So let's get started. The region around the Dead Sea and the lake itself were mentioned numerous times in both the Old and New Testaments. Lying a stone's throw northwest of the Dead Sea is Jericho. Also, nearby were the previously covered cities of the plain, which all, save one, were destroyed along with Sodom and Gomorrah. But, before their destruction, apparently the Dead Sea was a valley full of natural tar pits, with the area sometimes referred to as the Vale of Siddim. Remember, the word Vale is synonymous with valley. Not to forget, David was said to have hidden from Saul in the nearby area of Ein Gedi. Of course, he wasn't the king living in the caves, but was on the run, a B.C. fugitive. A little sidetrack into a desert refuge. Ein Gedi is an oasis in a nature reserve in Israel. It's located west of the Dead Sea, near Masada, and the Qumran Caves. The name Ein Gedi is composed of two Hebrew words, Ein meaning spring and Gedi meaning kid. Put them together and you get kid spring, or maybe the fountain of the kid. But in this case, a kid is not a child, but a young goat. Today, the area is home to many Nubian ibexes, probably the source of the name goat. The ibexes stand between 2 and 2.5 and feet, about 65 to 75 centimeters tall, and weigh 110 pounds or 50 kilograms. A picture will be posted on the podcast Facebook page. In 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 2, Ein Gedi is identified with Hazaz on Tamar, where the Moabites and the Ammonites gathered in order to fight King Josephat. In Genesis chapter 14, verse 7, Hazazon Tamor is mentioned as being an Amorite city, defeated by Shedolomur in his war against the cities of the plain. More on that war next week. In Joshua chapter 15, verse 62, Ein Gedi is listed among the cities of the tribe of Judah, in the desert known as Beth Arabah. Then, in Ezekiel chapter 47, verse 10, it shows that Ein Gedi was a fisherman's town, which is interesting considering that there are currently no fish in the Dead Sea. But Ein Gedi is located on the Nahal Aragat, a stream where there could have been such aquatic creatures. The narrative of King Saul pursuing David is found in 1 Samuel chapter 24, where King Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all of Israel and went to look for David and his men in the direction of the rocks of the wild goats. He came to the sheepfolds beside the road, where there was a cave. The rest of that story is very compelling, and perhaps will be covered later. People living in caves near the Dead Sea were recorded in the Hebrew Bible as taking place before the Israelites came to Canaan, and even more so at the time of King David. The Song of Solomon in chapter 1 waxes of the vineyards of Ein Gedi, where apparently henna blossomed. During the Greco-Roman period, Ein Gedi was home to a Jewish population. It was also an important source of balsam for the Greco-Roman world until its destruction by the Byzantine emperor Justinian. Similar to a previous episode, and as a testament to the longevity of ceramics, a synagogue mosaic remains that records Ein Gedi's previous prosperity. 
It includes a Judeo-Aramaic inscription and is now on display at Jerusalem's Schottentine Campus Museum. The mosaic warns the indigenous inhabitants against revealing the town's secret, which of course raises absolutely no curiosity or suspicion. It is thought that the secret may have been the process of extraction and preparation of the valuable balsam resin, but this was not stated on the inscription itself. Ein Gedi was mentioned many times in the Mishnah as producing the persimmon for the temple's fragrance and for export, also using a secret recipe. But it seems this secret wasn't as valuable as the balsam, as warning concerning its disclosure have not been found. Also, ritual salt, known as sodomite salt, came from the region. It was an essential mineral for the temple's holy incense, but was said to be dangerous for home use and could cause blindness. Of course, I couldn't publish an episode on the geography of the area without mentioning the Jewish-Roman historian Flavius Josephus. He writes of how the Sicarii, who fought the Romans until their defeat and mass suicide at Masada, plundered local villages including Ein Gedi. At Ein Gedi, they drove out the defenders and killed over 700 women and children who could not run away. More on the Sicarii later, but for now, back to the Dead Sea. In Ezekiel chapter 47, there is a very specific prophecy that describes in vivid detail how the sea will be healed and made fresh, becoming a normal lake capable of supporting marine life. But curiously, its swamps and marshes will remain salty. Another prophecy is found in Zechariah chapter 14, where it states that living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, thought to be the Dead Sea, and half of them to the Western Sea, believed to be the Mediterranean. None other than Aristotle, the Greek philosopher and scientist, wrote about the Brine Lake. The Nabataeans, along with others, discovered the value of the lumps of natural asphalt that constantly rose to the surface where they could be gathered with nets. The product was then exported to Egyptians, who were apparently steady customers, as they used the asphalt in the embalming process that created their legendary mummies. The Nabataeans were an Arab people who inhabited northern Arabia and the southern Levant. Their villages and cities were throughout the area. The most well-known of the cities was Rakhmu, which is now called Petra. You would recognize it if you saw it, and you can see it, as a picture is posted on the podcast's Facebook page. Nabataean was the borderland between Arabia and Syria, from the Euphrates to the Red Sea, they held loose control over a trading network, which centered on a group of oases that they held some sort of power over. Their agriculture was intensively practiced in rather limited areas and on the routes that linked them, but their territory had no securely defined boundaries in the surrounding desert. Not that it mattered too much. Areas of uninhabitable sand, without discovered natural resources, were not highly sought after, as has been true throughout history. The Roman Emperor Trajan conquered the Nabataean Kingdom and annexed it to the Roman Empire, where their individual culture, easily identified by the characteristic finely painted ceramics, was adopted into the larger Roman culture. The Nabataeans were later converted to Christianity. There will be more on them later. The Romans knew the Dead Sea as Pallas Asphaltitis, which roughly translates to the Asphalt Lake. King Herod the Great built several citadels and royal residences on the west bank of the Dead Sea. 
Perhaps the most famous was Masada, where in 70 AD, a small group of Jewish rebels fled after the destruction of the Second Temple. They survived at the hilltop fortress for three years until a siege by the Roman 10th Legion culminated with the deaths by suicide of the fortress's 960 inhabitants. Like so many things, there will be much more on this incident in a future episode. Another historically important fortress was Macharius on the eastern bank of the lake. Macharius is also on a fortified hilltop, but in this case, it was more of a palace than a fortress. The site is located in what is now Jordan, about 16 miles or 25 kilometers southeast of the mouth of the Jordan River, on the eastern side of the Dead Sea. Once again, Flavius Josephus writes of it. He believed it to be the location of the imprisonment and execution of John the Baptist. According to Mark chapter 6 and Matthew chapter 14, John's execution took place just before the Passover and after an imprisonment of two years. Many believe this was in the year 32 AD. The site was also related to four other New Testament characters. Of course, Herod the Great, one of his sons, Tetrarch Herod Antipas, his second wife, Princess Herodias, and her daughter, Princess Salome. This too will be covered in more detail later. Also in the Roman era, some of the Essenines settled on the Dead Sea's western shore. None other than Pliny the Elder named their location with the words, on the west side of the Dead Sea, away from the coast, above the town of Ingeta. This identification, as well as other evidence, leads some researchers to support a hypothesis that the Essenines are one and the same as the inhabitants of Qumran. This identification leads to the theory that the Dead Sea Scrolls, uncovered in the late 1940s and early 1950s in the nearby caves, were from the Essenes. The scrolls, well really hundreds of religious documents dated to between 150 BC and 70 AD, were found in the Qumran Caves. The caves are near the ancient settlement of Qumran, about 1 mile or 1.6 kilometers from the northwestern shore of the Dead Sea an area that is currently located in the Israeli West Bank. The Qumran Caves are actually a group of caves. The underground network is a mixture of natural and man-made tunnels. The geology of the area is sedimentary-derived limestone that forms cliffs above Qumran. Apparently, these caves have been known to people for thousands of years. The first indications that they were occupied are from the Chocolitic period, then onward to the Arab period. The artificial caves are probably from the period of the settlement at Qumran and were cut into the marble cliffs on which Qumran rests. The Essenes were a faction of Second Temple Judaism that thrived from the 2nd century BC to the 1st century AD. Some researchers contend that they seceded from the Zadokite priest. Their numbers were fewer than the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the two primary Jewish sects of the era. During the Byzantine period, the area around the Dead Sea was seen as a place of escape and refuge. The inaccessibility of the region attracted Greek Orthodox monks. They built their monasteries in the region. The St. George Monastery in Wad Kelt still stands to this day. Well, in some sense, it still stands. The original cliff-hanging St. George's Monastery was founded in the 4th century AD by a few monks who were looking to completely immerse themselves in the monastic existence. The monks, probably the most well-known being the hermit John of Thebes, 
eventually occupied a site near a cave, where it is believed the prophet Elijah was fed by ravens, as found in 1 Kings. The monastery was raised by the Persians and then rebuilt by the Crusaders before being abandoned. Then in 1878, a Greek monk known as Kalinikos settled in the ruins and began the rebuilding effort. He finished his renovation some 23 years later in 1901. And, even today, there are still a few Greek Orthodox monks who inhabit the monastery. In the late 19th century, the Jordan River and the Dead Sea were surveyed by boat by many European explorers, which probably to the locals had to seem a little odd. I guess they're characterized as explorers because the area is far too well known to be discovered. It was during this period that the so-called Moabite stone was found. You will also see this stone referred to as the Misha stone. The stone itself and the meaning of its contents will be covered in the future. In 1868, on a mesa east of the Dead Sea, antiquities dealer Moses Wilhelm Shapira, and the irony of his name is not lost on me, and his partner Salem al Karua allegedly forged and sold a whole range of presumed Moabite artifacts. And since the business was going so well, a few years later, in 1883, Moses Shirpa exhibited what is now known as the Shirpa Strips. These were allegedly an ancient scroll written on leather strips, which he asserted were found near the Dead Sea. The strips were later declared to be forgeries, and the disgraced Sherpa's life ended in an unrecoverable downward spiral. In the early 20th century, the region, and the Dead Sea specifically, began to attract interest from industrialists and chemists who determined the lake was a natural deposit of potash, or for you chemists in the audience, potassium chloride. It was also a good source of bromine. Like I've mentioned before, potash is used in agricultural fertilizer, Bromine was used as an additive in gasoline, but over the past 40 years it has been phased out. But bromine is still used in pesticides, flame retardants, pharmaceuticals, and even fabric dyes. And now, to switch gears and take a quick look at the current state of the lake itself. In 1930, the surface area of the lake was 410 square miles, or just over 1,000 square kilometers. Also at that time, the surface level was 1,280 feet, or 390 meters, below sea level. And, beginning then, the level and surface area has not only been consistently measured, but these measurements have been recorded so that the trends can easily be seen. The recorded measurements show that in the recent past, the lake has been rapidly shrinking. The shrinkage is primarily attributed to the diversion of incoming water from the Jordan River to agricultural irrigation. At the opposite end of the lake, water is fed via a canal to a company known as the Dead Sea Works. This enterprise converts the lake's water into salt and potash. Both of these factors, along with the ever-changing climate, has caused the lake's level to drop from its 1930 level to 1,296 feet, or 395 meters below sea level in 1970. Between 1970 and 2006, the level fell another 72 feet, or 22 meters. In the very recent past, the level has continued to drop about 3 feet, or 1 meter per year. The lake's continuously dropping level has led to a lowering of the groundwater level, 
This in turn causes the underwater saltwater table to fall and be displaced by underground freshwater. The soil that was formerly supersaturated with salt water is now occupied by freshwater, and this freshwater then dissolves salt deposits and causes below ground cavities. When these cavities collapse, a sinkhole appears. Consequently, with the dropping lake levels, more sinkholes have occurred in the area, especially along the western shore of the lake. In order to stem the tide, the country of Jordan is currently in the final planning stages of a combination above-ground pipeline and underground tunnel to bring water from the Red Sea to the Dead Sea. For the sake of brevity, I'll just refer to it as a pipeline. The 110-mile or 180-kilometer pipeline is estimated to cost in the neighborhood of 10 billion U.S. dollars and is being financed by the country along with the World Economic Forum and also has support from Israel. Interestingly, and it makes sense if you think about it, the pipeline would have some payback because as the water travels from the Red Sea, it loses elevation and as such has potential energy. This downhill run can be converted to electricity, rather innovative. So, not only can it aid in recovering the lake's level and potentially allow for more fresh water from the Jordan to be used for irrigation, but it can also provide electricity. Not to forget, though, that currently fresh water from the Jordan is flowing into the Dead Sea, and it will be replaced by salt water. As is everything in life, nothing is ever really free. The pipeline will carry enough water that some can be diverted to desalination plants, and they're converted into potable water, potentially in large enough quantities for both Jordan and Israel. Construction of the first phase is scheduled to begin in 2018 and is estimated to take three years to complete. And that wraps up the Dead Sea. The next natural step would be to cover the Jordan River, since it connects the Sea of Galilee to the Dead Sea. But instead, I'm saving that for when the pilgrims cross it in the book of Joshua. Join me next week when I'll cover the history associated with the Battle of Siddim, as found in Genesis 14. You don't want to miss it. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page. And if you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released. Finally, go to iTunes and give the podcast a positive review. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.